This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello and welcome to episode three of our podcast series for landed estates and historic properties. This carries on from episode two and continues the theme of staging outside events. Today, I am joined by two senior associates from Charles Russell Speechley's, Simon Spaniers, a senior associate in our employment team, and Richard Davies, a senior associate in our commercial team. My name is Naomi Nesselton. I'm a partner in real estate, and I specialise in advising land estates on events agreements. So firstly, Richard, let's talk to you a bit about some of the commercial aspects that land estates need to consider in light of putting on events. What, what do you think the key things are that you advise clients on in this space? Thanks, Naomi. I think the first thing that when estates are considering holding events is to actually get contracts in place. It seems like a simple thing, but actually a lot of the experience we've had during lockdown as events have been cancelled, you do actually find that one of the biggest problems is that there's not clarity on contracts with any of the key parties involved. So whether that's an event organiser or key suppliers, quite often there's a lack of assigned legal terms or clear legal terms as to who's doing what and, and what the responsibilities are. So I think that would be the first thing is to actually think about getting contracts in place and reviewing you know, particularly if there are events to come in the next few months whether that is the case. Simon Foster and I touched on that in episode two we talked about how it's important for landed estates to call in expertise and they can do that by getting an event organizer to come and stage the event for them so that's that contract that you're talking about there isn't it is the main terms and conditions for carrying out that event on that landed estate. Exactly. I mean, there's a couple of different models that the estates can can use, either direct organisation. So typically for things like weddings, it may be that the estate itself has a direct contract with the bride and groom for holding an event like that. But the, And then they will have flyer arrangements in place with, say, caterers and others if, if that's the, the model they're using. Or it may be that they have an event organiser that comes in and essentially puts on the events and, and is hiring the space from the estate to do that. But in either event, establishing what the key responsibilities between the parties are, you know, not just in terms of payment and what's being provided as part of the estate's obligation, but also, particularly in the current climate, the cancellation rights and what happens, the risk for each party in, in the event that events have to be cancelled. And if a landed estate is contracting with an individual under a, a wedding agreement or with a company and under a kind of hospitality type kind of more organiser event type agreement. Is there different law that the land estate needs to be aware of when they're contracting with a person than when they're contracting with a corporate entity? Yeah, there's a, a couple of different things which come into play there, but the, the consumer law position is the really important one. So, for example, when businesses are contracting with consumers, there's a number of uh, different laws which apply, which essentially allow a much more favourable position to the consumer. So, for example, a couple entering into a contract to hold a wedding at a venue, they will be entering that contract as a consumer. And the key difference really is around cancellation and changes to that contract. That would mean that if an event had to be moved, so the date had to be moved, you know, whether that's due to government advice or you know, something else happening at the estate which, which necessitated moving the date, the consumer is entitled to a refund in any situation if the event doesn't go ahead. Whereas in business to business contracts, it's open to the parties to agree what happens in the event of, say, a cancellation due to a government lockdown. That's really interesting. So the, the land estate needs to be really careful to, to take legal advice outside of what might necessarily be written on, on the page itself. Does that apply to where you've got events that are ticketed? And, and how does that work with the interplay with the individual who holds the ticket? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Particularly with ticketed events, again, it will depend on who is actually selling those tickets. Is it the estate themselves or is it an event organiser? So who's actually taking responsibility? But the basic position under consumer law, and I imagine that a lot of us have been finding this out over the last few months as various services and things that we've bought tickets to and are being cancelled, is that consumers are entitled to a refund. So that is the key position. So, for example, if you think of a large outdoor event that may be being held at an estate, to the extent that that has to be cancelled, every single consumer who has bought a ticket is entitled to a refund. Now, one of the things that we've been advising various bodies on over the last few months, and particularly charities that are holding events, is about whether actually you can ask the consumer if they are happy to, say, donate the fee. For landed estates that may be running as charities, and that could be an option as well, is to ask the consumers as to whether they are happy to, instead of receiving a refund, donate the price of the ticket. But again, they must be offered the right to a refund. So in terms of assessing the risks of holding the events and your potential insurance coverage and the cash flow position if an event is cancelled, these, these are really important considerations. And also obviously being clear at the outset as to what the potential risks are. Yeah, and I suppose that comes on to those terms and conditions and how you print them, where you print them, how clear it is. I really like the idea of people donating back. I, I think we've all felt, well, I don't know all of us, but I think those of us who work in the lands of states and historic properties worlds have felt really troubled and saddened by a lot of the press coverage we've seen about how the landed estates are obviously they've got huge upkeep that hasn't gone away just because they can't open to the public it doesn't mean to say that the roof stops leaking or that the bills to maintain the stonework and the gardening and everything can just stop so so i think that's that's a really great idea and hopefully some of the landed estates did manage to to do that or certainly will do in the future before simon we, we get you involved which i'm very keen to do and then to circle back to something together just one last thing richard in terms of the other kind of more commercialised aspects, we, we've all been to events and seen, or if we've been lucky enough, been ourselves as invitees of, of the more sort of hospitality areas of those events and how the commercialisation of that event can be enhanced by providing a kind of experience for the attendee, which is beyond just watching the spectator part, but actually form part of the day as a whole, including food, drink, etc. How does that play into all of this in terms of how that gets packaged up in in the contracts and and also, I suppose, the cancellation and risk elements of that as well. Yeah, so again, it comes back to uh, what contracts are in place and and who's entering into them. So often for an event organiser, the suppliers are their key risk to the event. They potentially are committing large costs up front and relying on those suppliers to deliver the services to to make the event a success and also you know, in the event that the, there is a cancellation, the potential costs and risks of what's been committed. So having contracts in place, clear contracts in place with suppliers is, again, a, a fundamental protection for the organiser to make sure there's clarity on what happens if there is a cancellation or indeed if, say, a supplier doesn't deliver a service that they have contracted to. So whether that could be providing marquees or it could be providing catering or any of the other services or, or things that you might see at events. So having a clear contract which says, exactly who pays what and ideally gives the organiser or the estates exit rights and doesn't commit them to spend for services that they haven't received. Now that's often a difficult balancing act and a point for negotiation as to at what time in the piece can a cancellation be made and what are the financial consequences of it but given it's 
such a key part of the event matrix and also a key risk in, in holding events. It's better to have those conversations up front and that you know, if in a few weeks time you're holding an event which may need to be cancelled, you have your clarity on what the financial position will be and you can assess that and, and the risk. Whereas when it's the unknown, that's when make, making decisions is a lot harder. No, no, I absolutely agree with that. And and certainly we learned a lot at the Olympics by trying to draft as much as we possibly could. Although I have to say we had obviously the occasional thing, which we hadn't necessarily picked up in the drafting exactly, but there had to be an element of spirit as well to agree those things as and when they arose. I'm conscious in that hospitality part that things now, as we return to potentially start events, and it's been great to read about some of the more summer occasional events coming online, um, including theatre, and I've seen, you know, other events coming along, driving cinemas and exciting things like that at Landed Estates. Do you think that those contracts can be prescriptive about how they manage things like the cleaning and catering in line with the requirements of the government for COVID? If they already existed, are there kind of applicable law type wordings that can pick up those types of changes? And and clearly that's going to cost somebody some money. And, and how are you seeing that being played out as between the various contracting parties who bears that increased cost, which is probably inevitable from having to do more cleaning or provide food in individual boxes rather than in a buffet? Yeah, it's, it's been a very difficult thing that's been worked out uh, as we speak with him, particularly as yeah, cause the, the advice changes so quickly. And you know, so the, there are certain additional costs which are being borne. And you know, for contracts that are already in place, you take a close look at where that sits. Sometimes it may have been catered for, sometimes it may not have. But it's you know, there, there's unlikely to be sort of a one size fits all solution to those types of issues. And it's very difficult to cater for you know, in any space to, to try and work out in a few months time what the world might look like and what potential costs could be there that suppliers or, or somebody will have to bear so it does generally come down to a discussion with long-term partners so if, if there's been a long-term relationship between an estate and suppliers and they have a good working relationship then they will come to a sensible resolution on it but it can certainly be a contentious area that leads really nicely into introducing you simon and and actually simon and i talked in a previous episode about how if you can make these things successful it, it, the, the best events are, are then repeated and they gain reputation and they become part of everybody's annual diary and, and nothing is more important to make that happen than the people that are involved in that so tell us a bit about how the land of estates might staff these events absolutely yeah so as as richard pointed out they can either do it through an event organizer or, or do it directly and if if they're thinking of doing it directly then the question is how are they going to get people involved to plan it market it run the actual events and if they don't have existing staff to draw on then it could be that they have to look externally and they can explore bringing agency workers which would be you know going to a, an agency and asking them to provide a temporary worker for this specific event or, or series of events and obviously a benefit of that to the estate would be that the estate shouldn't be the employer in that sort of arrangement. And so the agency itself should be dealing with all of those sort of employment protections that those workers would have. Obviously, it doesn't discharge all obligations towards the estate. There are certain things as the hire up that they would have to do in terms of making sure that they have access to the right facilities and you know they're processing their personal data, making sure that they're compliant under the GDPR and things like that. But overall, most of the, the would be on the agency there. And probably the estate would need to think about the the cost of, of doing that, and also the fact that they're you know they're be engaging unknown workers, they're unknown entities who don't know the inner workings of the estate and how they feel about bringing those people in on those events. Yeah, and that's really really important. And again, 
I thought about this a lot and I've seen it a lot in working with land estates in this field, how important the buildings and the land and the grass and the outside and the gardens are to that estate. And the people that work in those have often been there for a very, very long time. And it doesn't work if you just throw in a load of outside people who don't understand the inner workings of those buildings and which can be really, really sensitive and have their own historic quirks, as we can all imagine. I don't think anybody in the last few months could have thought about employees, employment and being exposed to any media without touching upon the word furlough. So I'm going to throw that out there. Um, in terms of getting staff involved and, and being conscious that there are people who you might just need to call upon as individuals because they're the ones with the knowledge. How does that work? If, if we were providing a land estate tomorrow and they suddenly said that we've been approached to put on this weekend thing, we'd like to do it. But you know, our head gardener who really has to be involved because it's going to use that part of the garden, you know, he's been on furlough. What, what do we do? How, how does that work? That is a really good question. And obviously, like many businesses, estates have been hit hard and, and have had to furlough staff. And we, we have actually been seeing, you know, fortunately, a lot of our clients have been bringing people back off furlough. I think we saw people like gardeners coming back first because obviously a lot easier to get people back and be able to manage their work safely when they're working outside in terms of social distancing and, and things like that. But there has also been some reluctance as well to get people back into to move too soon. To, um, you know, what if there's not enough work? What, what can we do with them then? And so that's why the government's flexible furlough scheme has the potential to be quite useful, particularly if we're thinking about organising an event or, or a series of events. It would allow you to bring people off furlough on a part time or even ad hoc basis, as long as you agree with them in advance what, what that might look like. And the benefit to the employees, of course, is that they, they'll be paid full pay for any hours that they actually work for you. So you can bring in your catering staff and or you know whoever you need to help prepare the grounds and the people that you need to run the event as well. And they'll be paid full pay for that time. And then when they're not required, they go back on furlough and you can claim their furlough pay from the government um, in the usual way. So if the state decides that it would like to bring somebody off furlough flexibly, there are some potential issues for it to bear in mind. For example, what if the employee is not available? It could be that they have gone and got themselves another job, which they're perfectly entitled to do with a different employer whilst they are on furlough from the estate, in which case they might not be able to come back and help with an event when you need them to, which obviously is a problem. And we'd advise you to make sure that you know what employees are doing during furlough so that you can get them back as quickly as you need them. Or it could be that they're on holiday, perhaps, which, again, they're entitled to do on furlough. And in fact, a lot of our clients are advising and encouraging employees to take uh, holiday so that they're not left with a whole load of holiday to take when they finally do come off furlough at a time when the estate is trying to get its business up and running again and open to the public and they're going to need their staff. And actually a really hot topic at the moment is what happens if employees are quarantined. If they do manage to go abroad for holiday, they come back and they have to have a 14-day quarantine period, then they absolutely cannot work during that time. So it's something that in estates and employers in general are going to have to make sure that they're they're alive to and, and factoring in if they do need their employees to come back off of flexible furlough. That's really interesting and, and it's good to know there is that flexibility and I think the events industry really lends itself to that because it tends to be very intense and but not necessarily continuous for say a month on end so you can imagine that that would work well for, for the staff managing in terms of those estates. 
in terms of the Nantes based staff themselves working on the events, let's go back to Richard's idea that you get an event organiser who effectively takes this off your hand. But actually, you do have key members of staff that need to get involved in that because they know the building, they know they know the grasslands, they know the outside areas. How does that work? Can, can those staff be seconded over to that event organiser company? How, how do they get involved in working in the event organiser's team? And, and can that cause issues from an employment law perspective as to who their employer is? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Potentially, that, that could be an issue. So if somebody comes in and starts doing work that the employee has been doing themselves, then yes, they could certainly be a disgruntled employee saying, well, you've just given my job to somebody else. So in, in that case, you could explore some comments that that could be a temporary arrangement, um, in which case the individual would remain an employee of the estate, but would be basically performing services for the, the event organiser and be you know, performing their duties that way. And potentially they, they could, in some circumstances, there could be cheapy issues if they can say that actually their role has been outsourced to that event organiser. It would have to be you know, very specific that that's what they're employed to do and now the event organiser is doing it. But you could see that potentially happening. And as long as it's not a temporary contract on which the event organiser has come in, then there, there could be issues of cheapy that, that we'd need to bear in mind and be careful yeah. that, you know, that employee could transfer over. You do see that as well with certain estates will outsource the event organisation over a prolonged period. So they may appoint a, a company for a period of two or three years to, say, you know, source the, and handle their wedding business. And so, so that could certainly be relevant in that sort of context and longer term, more permanent arrangements. Yeah, and I can imagine that then it's hard to know who works for who. So, Simon, we'd have to ring you up, which I'd be delighted to do. Um, so thank you both for joining me today. There's far too much to think about. And, and as we both know, and, and all know we, we, could, we could write pages and pages about all the other issues, but it's really nice to focus in on, on a couple of things, especially to bring in some of the current issues around furlough and, and the COVID health and safety and catering and cleaning issues around that. So thank you very, very much for joining me today. This is the second in this part of the Historic Properties Staging Outside Events series, and we look forward to joining you for our third part. If you need to discuss any of the issues, that was Simon Spanier, Senior Associate in the Employment Team at Charles Russell Speeches, Richard Davies, Senior Associate in the Commercial Team at Charles Russell Speeches, and I'm Naomi Nesterton, Partner in the Real Estate Team at Charles Russell Speeches. Thank you very much. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.